Thank you so much for having me here. I'm really excited to be uh, speaking at this event and to be talking about what I think is a very pressing topic and one that will only continue to become more and more important in the future, and that's police body cameras, and specifically how police body cameras can be used in conjunction with facial recognition technology. So body cameras are a technology that's being rapidly deployed across the country. Over the last couple of years, we've had a very meaningful and thorough debate about whether body cameras are good, bad, whether we want them in our communities. Um, but the fact seems to be at this point that body cameras are coming. A recent survey of the nation's largest police force found as many as 95% of our law enforcement agencies have either already begun to incorporate body camera technology into their police forces or have committed to doing so in the future. So whether like it or not, body cameras are coming to a you know, police department near you, and we need to start to get ready to figure out how we want these devices to be used. Now, the purpose of body cameras is to increase accountability, to make sure that police are acting properly, to make sure that there, there are disputes or use of force, we can figure out what actually happened. But without the proper rules and regulations set forth on how they should and must be used, these devices could also be co-opted for surveillance purposes. Um, in order to try to make sure that we're actually using body cameras for the former and not in an unrestricted manner for the latter, we need guidelines and rules for how they have to be used. That's um, an issue that the Constitution Project, where I work, just took on in a report re-released yesterday, setting out guidelines for preserving accountability in body cameras. We set out a set of near two dozen recommendations for how law enforcement agencies should use their body cameras to make sure that they preserve accountability without becoming a surveillance tool. Um, this is from our Committee on Policing Reforms, which is based on uh, um, <clears throat> so which is composed of civil liberties advocates, academics, and law enforcement. So hopefully the report can help guide departments in providing some common sense and consensus solutions that departments can take on in the future. Um, I want to talk about one specific area that we look at in the report, which is how should we use body cameras with facial recognition? And specifically, we recommend that judicial authorization should be required for the use of facial recognition with body cameras, and that police departments should also strongly consider limiting the set of crimes that they um, apply body cameras and facial recognition to. Now, you might be asking, how big of a risk of this? Do we really need to think about facial recognition with body cameras, or is this just some sort of risk of a uh, a dystopian future harm? And I think the answer is no. Body cameras are certainly coming, or sorry, facial recognition is certainly coming to body cameras. In some systems, it's already in place. For example, the Australian company, Strategic Systems Alliance, they incorporate facial recognition into the body cameras they're building right now. Their CEO boasts that when he walks around, if he's wearing a body camera, it's checking all the faces he's walking past and notifying if they're on his watch list. I don't know why the CEO of an Australian body camera company has a personal watch list, but he's free to advertise his products however he likes. Uh, perhaps more ominously, this summer, Taser CEO announced plans to incorporate facial recognition into all their body cameras into the future. Taser is the number one vendor for body cameras in America. So at the point when Taser's body cameras have built-in facial recognition, you can count on the fact that most American police departments that use body cameras will have facial recognition set in for it. Uh, with this type of plan coming, it seems a little less sci-fi and a little more like a, a real future when Taser's vice president promised that in the future, one day their, cop will, their technology will make every cop RoboCop. So what I want to talk about in examining this is how exactly can facial recognition be used with body cameras in what different manners, 
What are the risks these use pose, and what are the appropriate restrictions we should put in place in light of those risks? In the first instance, and I think the least controversial, is the idea of emergency situations. So for example, if you have an Amber Alert, body cameras could be uh, deployed with a face print of a child, or if you know it, the abductor, and used to scan to try to find them. This, in fact, is something that police already do, except they don't use a computer. They use all you. They send something to your phone, and you scan out to try to find someone in place. So automating that process with facial recognition doesn't seem like a huge stretch. And in fact, it also is fairly consistent with the rights that we have for privacy. The four, in the Fourth Amendment, exigent circumstances are a pretty commonly accepted circumstance that say you can look into someone's electronic devices or even their house without a warrant. So having a situation where you can readily feed in emergencies face prints into body cameras seems fairly reasonable from a privacy standpoint. But it gets a little more complicated from there. Now, the next scenario would be seeking a fugitive at large. Again, at first, this seems relatively non-controversial. Police could develop a face print of a fugitive, send that to body cameras, or log a set number of fugitives' face prints into body cameras, and then have officers on the beat constantly scanning for matches and notifying them if they encounter a fugitive at large. This could effectively take most wanted posters into the 21st century. Instead of officers trying to memorize the faces of 10 or hundreds of dangerous fugitives, you could just have the body camera doing all the work for them. Automated process notifies them whenever there is a match. And because this follows the issuance of arrest warrants, you actually do have independent oversight. So again, you have a good built-in check here. This seems like a fairly proper use for this type of technology and combination. But there are some serious risks to even what seems pretty common sense here in terms of using facial recognition of body cameras to seek fugitive at fugitives at large. Uh, two in particular I want to talk about. First, accuracy. Facial recognition can be prone to misidentify individuals. Uh, as Wade Henderson noted at the lunch discussion, this is far more likely to occur with minorities. It can happen to a very high extent in terms of misidentifying individuals. You don't want police officers at the behest of their body camera attacking someone who they think is a dangerous fugitive only to find out it's an innocent lookalike. So in those cases, we should have independent verification that you do in fact have a correct match before you're programming these in. Second and perhaps more troubling though is overuse. Using facial recognition to identify violent offenders, dangerous felons seems like a pretty common sense solution, but what happens when you have uh, outstanding warrants for petty offenses. That could give police immense, perhaps too much power. The reason for this is that cities sometimes have a disproportionate number of arrest warrants for minor crimes. Prime example of this, the DOJ report in Ferguson found 16,000 different arrest warrants for individuals in a city with 21,000 people. That's a huge portion of the population. And that means that if all crimes were included in terms of body camera scanning with facial recognition for active arrest warrants, Officers could effectively have arrest at will authority. That's something that could be targeted at minorities, targeted at protesters, or targeted at someone that an officer just has a bad interaction with. So in those cases, it seems that there is a logical step where we should limit the use of facial recognition and body cameras to serious violent offenses rather than petty offenses. And the next issue that I think becomes more troubling for privacy is using body cameras and facial recognition for real-time location identification and tracking. Now, location tracking has become a fairly common police tactic. In general, at a minimum, it requires reasonable suspicion and court approval, uh, thanks to the work of a lot of great groups. We're moving towards a system where many states now require a probable cause warrant 
for location tracking by police. Hopefully that will continue to increase in the future. But body cameras with facial recognition could offer a new unchecked means of automated tracking, one that without new rules could occur entirely without judicial oversight or suspicion. Now, to explain why this could occur, we have to look at the scale of video surveillance that body cameras introduce. Cities like Chicago and DC, which both already have body cameras, have on average over 50 police officers per square mile. Let's compare that to their current video surveillance technologies, such as CCTVs, which are in themselves somewhat controversial. DC has less than five CCTVs and traffic cameras per square mile. Even Chicago, which has a very controversial blue light police CCTV camera system that's widely deployed throughout the city, they only have 13 per square mile. So when we're talking about changing to a system where every officer has a body camera, we'll have video surveillance that's like this, the current blue light map of Chicago, except it will be five times as large in terms of the number of police cameras that are deployed at any given time. And these won't be stationary cameras that are known in their location, they will be mobile. Combine this with facial recognition and you could dramatically increase law enforcement's ability to tag the location, identify, and even track specific individuals. And because this is an automated process, there's virtually no limit to the number of people who you can do this for. It doesn't require you to assign several officers to tail someone. You simply put into the algorithm who you want to ID, who you want to track, and let body cameras and facial recognition do the rest in terms of monitoring location. So given the restrictions that we have on GPS trackers, on cell site information, even on, as a policy matter, stingrays, it seems both consistent with the law and a necessary step for privacy that if we're going to allow any type of location tracking for body cameras and facial recognition, we should require judicial authorization and probable cause. This type of restriction would still give law enforcement some means for location tracking, but it would ensure that if you're doing it, you're doing it in a manner that's directed at suspects, that's directed at investigations, that's in response to the cause, and that isn't subject to abuse that you might have if police have a free hand for this type of technology to track whoever they want, whenever they want. Now the final area I want to talk about is identification from stored videos. Mostly I've been focusing on what happens if you have police officers who on the beat with a body camera can have facial recognition running with that camera. But we also have to think about beyond searching for face prints in real time, facial recognition could be used with body cameras after the footage is recorded, stored, and logged with the department. Now, police could easily take footage from body camera and run that face against existing databases to discover a target's identity at any point based on an interaction that they see throughout the footage of their shift. Or they could simply build a profile of metadata even if there is no existing match. So you could say, take a person going into any building at any event, at any street corner and say, this is person X, person X was at a certain location at a certain time and then log that with the hope of IDing them later or maybe even building a larger profile if you see that same person without an ID at future events. Now this could play out in two ways. First, individual identification. And this could actually in some cases be beneficial. Notably, if you have a suspect fleeing the scene of a crime, you could use facial recognition from a body cam footage to identify them. But you could also use this to monitor individuals engaged in non-illicit activities like protests or religious ceremonies. And that's where it becomes very, very problematic and worrisome. So to prevent this type of misuse, again, judicial authorization, the, the check of independent oversight and approval with probable cause could be an effective check to allow for these proper uses but cut off the type of misuses that we would worry about. 
Now, finally, most troubling is the idea of this same type of identification on a mass scale. In recent years, police have targeted surveillance at Black Lives Matter protesters and Muslim communities. These type of efforts aided with body cameras could take the scale of cataloging individuals engaged in non-illicit activities to a truly unprecedented scale. Police on the beat, outside a religious ceremony, at a protest, once their footage is recorded, it could be used to catalog every single person at an event. Or if the government intended to, it could simply send officers to these type of events with the goal of recording individuals' faces and then cataloging the full list. You could have a sort of digital version of a J. Edgar Hoover style enemies list by sending cops to locations such as protests, religious ceremonies. And again, thinking about the type of surveillance we've seen in the past decade that has been most objectionable, surveillance of Black Lives Matter protesters, surveillance of mosques and Muslim communities, it's not extremely hard to imagine the worst way that this could play out today. And even if we don't actually have this type of dystopian future where these groups become targeted for mass surveillance, the mere threat poses a strong chilling effect. Imagine if you plan to go to a protest. You see a police officer there. Their goal is to keep the peace, to make sure everything works right. They have a body camera. The purpose of that body camera is to make sure that they're acting properly, that they're accountable for everything they do. If you know that that body camera is recording you and could later be used to scan your face to catalog the fact that you're at a protest, and then to use that information by law enforcement some way, are you potentially a little less inclined to go there? Are you maybe going to second guess that type of basic First Amendment speech? So again, we think that in this context, developing face prints from body cameras, it should be something that requires judicial approval, it should be based on probable cause, and it should be individualized so that you can have proper uses for this type of technology, but at the same time you can prevent the misuse that would be directed at non-illicit activities and would be directed at surveillance that has tried to, and sometimes, focus on vulnerable groups. Um, I really hope you'll give a look into our full report, which, ta which takes on this and many other issues. It's available online. We also have a bunch of copies outside. Um, again, facial recognition is the one area that I focused on, but we take on a full set of recommendations for how police should be using body cameras. Um, whenever I talk about a somewhat ominous topic like this, I like to end on a bit of a cartoon or lighter note, so for the sake of facial recognition, I will do that and say thank you so much for your time, and uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of the conference. All right. Um, that was terrific. Um, thank you so much to Julian and to Cato for having me here. Um, I'm going to be talking today about the use of social media by law enforcement. Um, we're not yet at a place where we have sort of recommendations about what that looks like, but we've been doing a fair amount of work on what the landscape is and raising some issues, and so that's what I want to talk through with you today. Um, oh, I am seeing this on this in front of me, but not up here. What am I doing wrong? Is there somebody who can answer that question? Anybody? Anybody? Oh, there we go. Okay, now it's come up. Thank you for bearing with me. Okay, um, so about three to four weeks ago, I want to say, um, the Brennan Center released a map, which is online on our website. And what the map looks at is now 155 jurisdictions across the country. So that's cities, 
counties, police departments that use some kind of social media monitoring technology in some way. This is specifically the ones that spent at least $10,000 or more looking from 2010 until now. Um, the way we found this information was using a database of, pro of procurement orders called Smart Procure. We have a subscription to it. And so we were able to do searches for a bunch of the companies that we know provide social media monitoring um, sort of functionality, uh, which means being able to look at social media postings in a whole variety of ways. So we um, pulled out, if you go online, you can see what all those nifty colored pins are um, if you search for Brennan Center and social media map. But basically, we broke them down into kind of different spending bands to see who was spending less, who was spending more, and who was using. Uh, we looked at, at eight different companies. We'll be adding more, and we'll be adding more um, cities, counties, and police departments, but breaking down what those are. So if you click on um, a locale, then it pops up information about what the company is, where it's based, what kinds of uses we might know about in that city, and how much they've spent, and it also links to the procurement orders for that particular city, so you can kind of dive down into that. There are a few figures that we pulled out from that that I want to highlight. Um, so the first is that um, among the jurisdictions that we looked at, the 155 jurisdictions since 2010, they have collectively spent almost $5 million on social media monitoring. Um, the highest amount spent by a single jurisdiction, the Florida Department of Law Enforcement spent almost $200,000. And then there are a few below that. You can see they are mostly kind of large jurisdictions. So county of LA, Harris County, Texas, where Dallas is, um, a county in Michigan, and then the Virginia Department of Emergency Management. But they've all spent a fair amount of money to be able to monitor, law uh, monitor social media. Um, I should say from the procurement orders, we don't know precisely. So we can't say, you know, oh, we know that they're using this to monitor what people are saying on Twitter about X, but we know that they are buying a service um, that, as one, of, as one of its sort of main functions, provides monitoring to, to law enforcement. Um, and a lot of them bought a couple of different services. So they might have bought Geofedia and MediaSonar, MediaSonar and SnapTrends, something like that. Maybe it's one year to another they tried different ones. Maybe it's that they're buying a few at once to sort of try them out. Um, at the same time, very few of them have publicly available policies about how this information is used. So a number of them have policies on how they affirmatively use social media. So if you're a police officer and you want to know, how can I put out there on Twitter or, or on Instagram um, an invitation to a block party that we're co-hosting or pictures from our latest toy drive? That there are a fair amount of policies on. If what you want to know is how can I um, track a particular um, suspect or person of interest? Um, how can I use an undercover account to connect with somebody? How can I apply this technology to do link analysis to, link analysis to figure out who's connected with each other? Very few of the jurisdictions have publicly available policies on that. They may have them somewhere, um, but by and large, they aren't available to the public, which means that there's very little transparency about how these services are actually being used and how that impacts civilians. Um, so we do know that there are a variety of ways, as I said, that law enforcement, that social media monitoring is used by law enforcement. So it could be community outreach and engagement. Um, there could be countering anti-government messages online. That's often more likely to be on the federal level. So there was just a panel on countering violent extremism. Um, and that's certainly a tool to be able to sort of put other messages out there. Um, it could be investigating individuals. Um, so often social media companies 
won't hand over information directly to law enforcement. So this is sort of seen as a way to access that information um, if it's public or if there are undercover accounts being created. Could be investigating groups. And there are a couple of slides I'm going to show in a minute that, that dig into that in a little more detail, um, but maybe monitoring um, hashtags, monitoring pictures in common, people in common, things like that. Um, and then situational awareness, and then this link analysis, sort of seeing link analysis, seeing who's connected to each other. Um, so the International Association of Chiefs of Police um, does a survey now every year, this is a regular survey, um, that they send out to hundreds of police departments around the country asking how they use social media monitoring and generally social media technologies overall. So the 2015 report, um, which is the last one that's out, there were 509 law enforcement agencies that responded. Um, of those, the actual, the, the teeny tiny number down there at the bottom, that is the number of agencies that do not use social media tools. It is a very small percentage. So more than 96% of the law enforcement agencies that responded said, yes, we use social media in some way. Um, so that could be public outreach. It could be a variety of other things. But if you can see the numbers at the top, and I know the type is a little small, Almost 90% use it for criminal investigations. Over half use it for listening or monitoring. And three quarters use it for intelligence. So quite a number of these law enforcement agencies are using it not just to kind of put out a public face, but also to, to gather information. Um, and they provided some specifics with respect to how it's used in investigations. Um, so we know that a number of them um, will um, develop an undercover identity. Um, and some of the social media companies kind of provide ways to facilitate that. Um, and over 92% um, could review social media profiles or activities of suspects. What you don't see here, and one of the areas where I think um, there's uh, more concern or additional concern is in terms of monitoring of groups, and especially if you're thinking about protesters or activists. Um, so this is an email that was um, obtained by the ACLU of Northern California, which has done fantastic FOIA work to kind of dig out some of the context of how these tools are being used, and especially how they're being marketed to law enforcement agencies. Um, so this is an email from Geofedia, and I should pause here to say that after a lot of these emails became public, Twitter especially has now cut off access to at least three companies that provide social media monitoring. So Geofedia, which is highlighted here, and also two other companies, Media Sonar and Snapchats, they are no longer allowed access to the kind of data that was allowing them to market themselves as we can see everything and we can kind of help you track down anything you want. Um, but there are a few interesting things that come out of this. One is that Geofedia was kind of marketing itself as being able to track protests. So they specifically called out, they said, we covered um, Ferguson and Mike Brown nationally with great success. Um, they say that they have undercover account linkage. And there's this question, how many fake accounts can be loaded up into the database in order to see the private users? There is no limit. And this is an area as well where there's very little visibility about what exactly it means to create those fake accounts. But clearly, that's a functionality that's available to law enforcement. And just to um, kind of emphasize this, this is another email, um, again, from ACLU of Northern California, also from a Geofedia representative, saying DAs specifically are very interested in this piece about monitoring for protests and investigations. Um, and so thinking about monitoring for protests especially and the civil liberties concerns that would come out of that, what does it mean to be monitoring protesters, to, to be monitoring activists who are um, often engaged in perfectly lawful and First Amendment protected activity. Um, and there's one more piece of that 
This was a funding request from the Denver Police Department. This was obtained by the Daily Dot. Um, and the, the one interesting th piece that I just wanted to identify here, the, the second highlight down says, this tool allows you to identify potential witnesses to a crime after an event, which could assist in, this, in the investigation of a terrorist threat or act. And that says this was successfully done after the Boston Marathon bombing. So on the one hand, it's a perfectly legitimate point after investigation of a terrorist act. This might be a legitimate way to find um, witnesses. On the other hand, the kind of immediate linkage from a crime to let's think about terrorism, because that's often um, kind of the terminology and the frame that's used to roll out more and more of these monitoring tools. Um, so I just want to highlight, and I know that we are just about out of time, a couple of different actual uses that we've seen of social media monitoring. Um, so there are a few examples of, uh, you know, successful and, and potentially relatively innocuous uses of, of social media. Um, so somebody who had put up a video of himself rapping about murdering somebody, including the name of the victim, um, and he had posted that publicly on social media. Um, after the 2011 riot in Vancouver, um, using social media to, to crowdsource to sort of figure out who was involved, um, and some one that seems innocuous in a variety of ways, which is somebody who had thrown a football at a police squad car, but apparently a friend of theirs put up a media, uh, put up a video publicly. In terms of the uses that we would be more concerned about and that implicate this sort of um, monitoring of protesters, but also concerns about even targeting individuals and what it means to do that through social media. Um, so the Oakland, California and Salem, Oregon Police Departments monitored Black Lives Matter protests and especially hashtags, including the head of the Oregon Department of Justice being targeted because he had used a Black Lives Matter hashtag. Um, a teen in New York who was indicted on gang conspiracy charges and spent time in Rikers, spent two years in Rikers, including in solitary due in part to the fact that he had liked things on Facebook. And the conclusion was that he was part of a gang. Um, he was friends with people, but he was not um, evidently involved in gang activity, but that was used basically as part of the indictment. Um, and then the Drug Enforcement Agency, which used the picture of a suspect in another case on Facebook, but used it to create a fake account as bait to track down fugitives, pictures of her and I believe pictures of her children. Um, they ultimately settled uh, with her for over $100,000 for that misuse. Um, so that is a very quick overview of the issues that we're seeing with social media monitoring. We will be keeping up the map and also gathering more information on this um, and also very much thinking about um, issues related to good policies, transparency, and principles to help guide how some of this is happening. Sure,